Hello, 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 and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. You can find the Katie Halper Show on SoundCloud and iTunes. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Also, please subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show for bonus content, extra interviews, extended interviews, etc., etc. Also, check out my new podcast with Matt Taibbi called Useful Idiots, which is available on Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube. Today, I have uh, two people joining me in the studio. I have Anders Lee, who is a stand-up comedian and a podcaster, and a very special guest, the poet and very well-known anthropologist, Renato Rosaldo, who's talking about his new book, The Chasers, which is a book of poetry. Um, So first, um, Anders and I are just going to talk a little bit, and then we're going to bring in Renato to talk to us about his great new book. Hey, Anders. Anders Lee here. Hey, Happy Anders. to be on air. Thank you. Happy to have you on air. Yeah. So tell us, you you were in um, Edinburgh. This, I was. This, tell us what you were doing there. And I was uh, there for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, or the Edinburgh Festival Fringe is actually the oh, real name, which is weird. I don't know why it is. I know that, that yeah. Uh, yeah, I was doing my solo show, Dummy. Uh, Don't call me that, please. <laughs> I was oh. doing my solo show, dummy. Uh, no, that's the name of the show. It's about me. It's describing me. Uh, I identify as dumb. Mm-hmm. And the government and the medical model identifies me as having a disability, being autistic. Uh, so it's about the history of the autism diagnosis, coming to terms with what that means for me as an adult, even though I was diagnosed as a little kid. And basically, uh, you know, it goes back to eugenics. And this is this very wacky, crazy history that a lot of people don't know about. But the message of this show is that we need to start treating people as individuals rather than relying on labels. So I was right. doing that uh, every night for a month, basically. So I went a little nuts doing that, as you might imagine, um, but I'm happy to be back in the, in the U.S., you know, yeah. in New York City. Awesome. And did you change it, uh, your your one-man show? Yeah. Which is great, by the way. I've seen it. I saw it in Brooklyn. At Brooklyn Comedy Collective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I have made some changes. Yeah, I've made it a little lighter. Uh, it just gets kind of draining doing, you know, a heavy show like that all the time. So I uh, made it funnier, and I also unveiled a bit of the history of eugenics. So I talked about Asperger's and his relationship with the Nazis in the first iteration of the show, Uh, but this one, I went a little more in depth to the eugenics movement and how that really, you know, the IQ test comes out of eugenics, the diagnosis autism comes out of eugenics, even before Asperger's, it was coined by this Swiss psychiatrist, Ugen Bluler, who was a eugenicist. Um, And it's kind of like, Obviously, a, a dark subject, but I try to make light of the different categories they would have back then. And at the time, people minded meant anybody who was unintelligent, insane, epileptic, Italian. They just <laughs> wanted to weed out the undesirable traits. There were three subcategories of feeble minded people, and they were all divided based on a person's perceived mental age. The lowest one was idiot, which meant you were mentally age three and below. I would like to think I would make it past idiot. I can walk and talk pretty well. My walk is a little better than my talking. I don't think I would be an imbecile. I might be an idiot. Or I might be the last one, which was moron, which meant you were mental age 7 to 12. Now, obviously, I don't believe in these categories, but it would be nice to get a test. So if someone accused me of being an idiot, I could be like, excuse me, I'll let you know that I'm at 
least a low-grade moron. <laughs> Silly, obviously messed up designation, but like, you know, looking back on it, it seems so ridiculous. But back then, that was common sense. That was the way the world ran, was on these eugenic uh, thoughts and, and, and um, ways of seeing the world. That's why people were categorized by their... Sounds hilarious. I mean, you don't have to add any comedy to it. No, it is actually funny. Um, and uh, Yeah. Wow, that's rain, apparently, if you hear that. Guys, this is the sound of rain. I thought someone was making photocopies. I just wanted to announce that. It adds a it nice adds, environment yeah. to the yeah. show. Yeah, it does, you know? yeah. Especially because we're going to be talking to a poet. Right. Um, so it's very rhythmic. Rhythm. Guys, I just have to tell you all that I met someone last night. Someone Ooh. I'm a big fan of. It finally happened. I kind of met him before, but it was like a, it was like a drive-by, walk-by meeting. And his name is Bernie Sanders. I've heard of this guy. Yeah. I went to a little event for him in Brooklyn. He was great. He was, like, on fire, and he mentioned, he cursed at one point. He said, can you believe? He goes, that's some crazy S word. Right. Um, very inspiring. Great, great, great speech. Really great that's to see That's usually him a little more PG-13 than he goes. He'll say, damn. But he doesn't go as far as the S bomb usually. Right. Yeah. No. I think maybe maybe Beto. Although Beto is that's like his strategy the, now. I know. Is Beto's F word is so. I know. I know. What the fuck? Fucked up. I really fucked up. Fuck that. No. Yeah. Fucking amazing. You know the shit he's been saying. Members of the press. What the. Fuck? He's like done like this jumping on t- tables and jumping on cars and everything else. <laughs> that's run out as being <laughs> novel. So now he's turned to the F word. Yeah. Standing on things. Cursing. Being a bad dad, like oh, was he a bad? Is he a bad dad? He is a bad dad. Why? Because he doesn't. His wife like takes care of his kids, and he basically has admitted that he has little to no role in raising them. Wow. All right. Well, at least he's honest about it. Um, (laughs) Also, his he was his dad named him Beto. For specifically, so he'd have a political career. Yeah. Which I kind of feel like is hispandering. <laughs> it literally is. Uh, it right, is right. Yeah. As well, you are, you are one of the hosts of the of the podcast Pod Damn America. I am part of the Damn Fam. The Damn Fam, and I remember it was Jake Flores saying that Beto uh, running against Ted Cruz yeah. was a, um, a Hispanic guy pretending to be white running against a white guy pretending to be Hispanic. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, all these these labels and uh, are are at the end of the day random and, and created and yeah. and anthropological. At the right, end of the day, right. how do you like that for a transition? Yes. So and often eugenic, I may. Yeah, add. right. Although our guest who we're introducing is is not a eugenicist. No. he is an anthropologist. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on to the show, Renato Rosaldo, world-renowned anthropologist and poet, and author of four books of poetry, <laughs> and the latest one is called Chasers. Can you tell people how it came about? Well, uh, the way the Chasers came about is that we started getting together after 50 years of not seeing each other. Wow. And we did it at our 50th high school reunion. And the, and when you say we, you're talking about the people who are part of this this club, as you call it, the Chasers. Yes. And you wore matching jackets that yeah. said Chasers and had martini glasses. Yes. Full of uh, champagne. champagne. And they said Tucson at the bottom. Yes. Yeah. And Chasers at the top. At the top, right. That was our logo, right? Yeah. And we, there were 12 of us, and I, I don't know why, we, what we did was we added a member every now and then, 
and we decided to stop when we reached 12. Mm, like a, like the Supreme Court. Yeah, right. <laughs> or like a jury, sorry, like a like jury. A jury. Uh, that's, I'm trying to pack the court. That was my subconscious <laughs> court packing. Yeah. 12 and angry men, 12, 12 chasing men. 12 chasing men. And what we were doing was getting together, and we hadn't seen each other. And when we got together, we felt like we'd been together the day before. And we decided that we should keep on getting together. It wasn't exactly a decision. It was more like we couldn't stop ourselves right. from re-reunioning, right? Yeah. And we did this the next year again, about the same time, which was October when the reunion was. And we said, this is fantastic. And we did it a third year. <laughs> and we just couldn't contain ourselves. We, we, Because we'd been so tight as a group during high school that we, we were really intimate friends who hadn't seen each other for an age but hadn't missed a beat. And um, we said, you know, we should get something to remember this by. We started with photographs. And we tried taking pictures. And, and then I said, you know, my brother does video uh, camera work. And why don't I have him take videos of this? And then I realized, say, I'm an anthropologist. I, I do ethnographic interviews. That's... Uh, part of my job description. Why don't I interview all of us? So I interviewed all of the chasers, uh, except one who'd passed away. And I said, you know, maybe I can make a movie. And it hadn't exactly occurred to me that I'd never made a movie. Right. And I had no idea of how to make a movie. I just hadn't thought much about that. And then somebody said to me, look, your brother didn't have the latest video equipment. He didn't have the right light. He didn't have the oh, right wow. sound. Wow. These look like home movies. Wow, we're gonna, you're really throwing your brother under the bus. We're going to have to have <laughs> him on to defend himself. Yeah. I, th I think he, he should come here, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I am throwing up. But anyway. Uh, yeah, it's not. all good fa fun and family. And yeah, blood is thicker than, than uh, many substances. Yeah. <laughs> Than rainwater. Yeah, exactly. Right? The rainwater, yeah. Uh, so I realized that the project of doing the film was hopeless. Um, but you still recorded it? You still have a lot no, of the footage? I have all the footage. Great. Okay. No, I did that. And, and what I finally did was that when I realized, you know, I, I said, for me to figure out how to make a movie with home video right. is beyond me. Yeah, we can work on it. Uh, Anders and I. Yeah. At least make an Instagram story out of it. Right. But probably... Well, we could do a very long Instagram yeah, story. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, we. I have a trailer. How to Imagine the Chasers. Happy birthday. A band of 12 high school guys. Their jackets made them visible at Tucson High. 1956 to 1959. You either were or were not a chaser. I was a chaser. 
Most said we turn out badly. After meeting up for our 50th Tucson High School reunion, we chasers remembered what we never forgot, what we held close, the people and places we never let go. Little wonder that once we resumed, we couldn't stop gathering, looking back, unforgetting. Can you tell us what you do and did as an anthropologist and how it connects to your poetry? And then... Um, what I did as an anthropologist is called ethnography, which is basically a description of a way of life. And I spent three years in the Philippines, in the hills of Luzon, northern Luzon, north of Manila, living with a hill tribe there, learning their language, trying to, the best I could to enter their world and try to see family life, the life cycle, trying to see human life from their point of view. And that's just how do they do things, how do they talk about things, how do they perceive them. And so, and I did it kind of by imagining myself as one of them. Mm -hmm. And saying, almost trying to put myself in their shoes which I know I can't really do because I didn't grow up there. And one of the ways that I really knew I couldn't do it is that they go up in trees and they pollard them, which means cut off the living branches. And they go up on rattan vines. They're 100 feet in the air. And I said, I cannot put myself in those shoes. Right. This is something I cannot do. I can only imagine it a little bit from watching it and from watching little kids trained to be able to do it, but no way can I even remotely begin to do this. So I was acutely aware of my limits, but I still was saying, let me do the best I can, because that, that I figured that's what I'd come for. That was my job. Uh, and I would say that with the chasers, one of the underlying, well, the subtext, one of the underlying stories that's not fully made explicit is how when I became a chaser, I was doing field work mm. in anthropology. Mm. Without knowing it? Without knowing it. Of course, I had no idea I was going to become an right. anthropologist never occurred to me. I didn't exactly, I had very little idea of what it was, why you would do it, what would be fascinating about it. But I did know that I desperately needed to become Mexican-American. Mm. And the issue for me was my dad was from Mexico, not from the southwestern United States. He was from Veracruz on the Caribbean coast and they'd lived in Mexico City. And your mom? My mom was from Anglo woman from Southern Illinois. Right. And so I spoke English with her and Spanish with my dad. 
until my Spanish language hard drive went blank. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then and then I struggled when I was in high school to relearn Spanish, mm -hmm. which I did. It started pour, pouring back into me, right? So my my what I was trying to do was become a chaser, which meant become Mexican American, learn a set of skills, perceptions, and uh, ways of living, thinking, feeling about the world that I that I hadn't had before, and uh, and I learned things like. When you leave a party, you say goodbye to everybody, one by one. Mm -hmm. And if you're an Anglo-American, that's self-centered. You don't do that. You don't call attention to yourself. You don't break up the party. Right. We do the Irish goodbye. Yeah. yeah. Right. The Irish goodbye is when you leave without saying goodbye, right? Mm -hmm. And then yeah. the Jewish goodbye is when you say goodbye without leaving. Yes, <laughs> no. That's that, that's the Chicano goodbye. Okay, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you, uh, yeah you never leave. Yeah, you, you just never say goodbye, leave. Yeah. You just say goodbye, right? Uh, and, but you got to do it. And if you don't, for example, somebody will call you the next day and say, "Are you angry at me? Right? <laughs> Why did you leave without saying goodbye? What did I do to you? <laughs> right? To deserve this, yeah. And yeah. so, what have I done to deserve this? Yeah." So before you joined the Chasers and sort of uh, embraced uh, Chicano, Mexican-American identity, what did, what was your self-conception? What did you sort of see yourself as? I saw myself, I, I was acutely aware, because I'd lived in Wisconsin before. See, my oh. dad had migrated from Mexico to Chicago. Okay. And got his PhD at the University of Illinois, taught Mexican literature, and was a pioneer in that. I mean, it was one of the first, because you taught Spanish from Spain. Right, right. Literature. Right. You didn't uh, teach right. Mexican or Latin American yeah. right. at that time. Right. Um, so in Lorca and uh, I'm trying to think who else was, Unamuno, stuff like Uno, that. Yeah, all yeah. of that. And, and um, so my father was one of the first people to teach Mexican literature in the U.S., Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize that till I was much older. And then I became very aware of it at his funeral when people spoke about that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I hadn't, hadn't tuned in because he didn't want to bring that home. Right. And also, it's, yeah, people won't say the things about themselves that others will say if they're exactly. humble, right? Right. Um, so you, it was through hearing people speak at his funeral that you realized the contribution he made. Yes. Yeah. And I realized that there were battles that he fought and things like that, that, uh, it you know, it was like a struggle. It wasn't just given that he could do that. Right. I mean, my mom, who's um, an, a novelist, but also was an English professor, I remember she said how she had to fight to just get her thesis approved at Columbia. She wanted to write about Virginia Woolf. <laughs> and you know, which is so funny because today she's basically no like, girls allowed yeah, at yeah, that time. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, that's great. And have you read your father's works or? Y yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. I even I went to hear him lecture once, and he wrote a, a paper that was very moving that I've read, 
that's called the mayoria minoria. Mm -hmm. And what he was speaking about was his life, but it was actually, as I read it, his life contrasted with mine. What Which it means is, a majority minority for people yes, listening, yeah. Who don't so that, that uh, so that if you're part of the majority population, you don't think about being Mexican. Everybody's Mexican right, right. Mm -hmm. here, right? Right. And then at some point when he comes to the United States, as he had said it there, he he became a minority. Right. And he wasn't the majority population. But I think he was thinking a lot about my experience growing up versus what his had been. Um, and he was probably thinking about the chasers. Right. But he, it's not in his paper, but I, yeah. I think that's what, what was going on for him. And I want to ask you to read from Chasers, but I also want to make sure that people know about some opportunities that they can have to see you. Tuesday, September 10th at 6 p.m. at the King Juan Carlos Center, which is 53 Washington Square South. Monday, September 16th, 7.30 at Greenlight Bookstore, 686 Fulton. In Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. Uh, Wednesday, September 18th, 6.30, Word Up, 2113 Amsterdam. So three Washington Heights. Washington Heights, yeah. So three events um, just coming up in the next, next couple of weeks. Yeah, so that's exciting. In the case of the Chasers... I was doing exactly what an anthropologist would do. I was figuring out what the way of life was, how to how to be a member of this group, and what was involved. However, I was not doing it in order to write it up or for the purpose of social description. I was doing it so I could go native. Right. So I could become Mexican-American, right? Yeah. And in the case of... Uh, Anthropology, there's a taboo on going native. Right. Uh -huh. Which means when you try to pretend, what does going native mean? I've heard it in the in the context you, of the, of anthropology. When you become the subject, you, you you actually become a member of the group yeah. that you're right. studying, and that's bad because it's you, because you're not objective. Objective, right? right okay. And I I think that's a mistake, but it's another story. Right. It's a mistake in that. Uh, the one one of the people who most famously did it became a member of secret societies, religious societies, and uh, and he no longer could write about the religion which he was writing brilliantly uh, yeah, about. Right. But he came to a much deeper understanding mm. of it, I'm sure, though he chose not to write about right. it. Right. And can so that so that's why they say you can't go native. I I I think that it's the hedging things in in a way that's not productive because you you have to make some judgments in there. Right. And you're, you're saying saying you're saying condemning going native is in a bl is, is blanket a, way. Yeah, right. is is like group libel or something. Yeah. It's hmm. it's not not necessarily true and you do want to have that understanding right. from within and where it matters terribly to you to know how to do this and know how to right. be this kind of person. Right, so, but not climbing um, vines, not climbing uh, no, 100 feet. Not, not yeah. 100 feet in the air, no. Yeah. Yeah. Bad idea. Use the little common sense. Right. <laughs> Don't go too native, yeah. And when did it register with you that, that you had been doing this all along, and, and when did you decide to like pursue anthropology? 
well, I decided to do that when I was an undergraduate, okay? My sophomore year, there was a chance to do field work in Ecuador. And when I started doing field work, I said, oh, this is easy. Uh, But I hadn't connected the dots. I hadn't said, I've been doing this for four years in high school. I know how to do this. Uh, It's not necessarily easy, but but it's something where I felt like I had a lot of the right instincts and a lot of background knowledge. And practice. And practice. In some ways, right? Yeah. Yeah, in many ways. And part of this book is showing how that's true. And that came late in writing the book because I realized that I'd written about all the chasers except me. Mm, And it was too painful because I was sort of, I was embarrassed about how I didn't have the usual life story that other chasers did. And I, I felt embarrassed about a lot of things that I was saying at when I was in high school. And later I've gotten rid of that. But uh, uh, I, I really came to realize how this informed me as an anthropologist as I was writing the book. Mm-hmm. And it's, well, see, I don't, think, I don't think that as a writer or as a poet that you get an idea, there it is well formed in your mind, and then you write it down. Right. I think as you write it down, you come to realize or understand things that you didn't know as you started writing the thing. And so as I was writing this all down, I came to realize how much it had formed my career choice as an anthropologist and my abilities and even my priorities in the field and the critiques that I've done of the field. And uh, so I, I but, but that came in the process of writing this book. Mm-hmm. So I, wh- what day exactly I realized it, I don't think there was a little light. Right. Oh, God, you didn't have a eureka. It just yeah. kind of, yeah, there was a kind of dawning of, right. oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So should I read yeah, something? Yes, please, yeah. Well, I will read Prelude. Okay, Which great. is the first poem in the book. It sets up the story. How to imagine the chasers, a band of 12 high school guys more club than gang. Their jackets made them visible at Tucson High, 1956 to 1959. Eleven were Mexican-American, one Jewish. Ethnicity was trumped. You were or were not a chaser. I was a chaser. Most said we'd turn out badly. After meeting up for our 50th Tucson High School reunion, we chasers remembered what we never forgot, what we held close, the people and places we never let go. Little wonder that once we resumed, we couldn't stop gathering looking back, unforgetting. 
Should, should I read a couple more? Yeah, yeah, please, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's really nice. I mean, I read it, and it's really nice to hear it. It's That's a different experience. That's the thing about poetry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and when, when I read poetry publicly, I try to get inside the poems, and if I'm inside, I'm okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I just say... If I'm go native in the poems. Go native in the poems, yep. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. This poem is in the voice of Dicky de la Hante, and it's about Ray Escalante. It's called Fastest Naked Sprinter. We had swimming parties at El Encanto Estates. We'd scout, see who's on vacation and use their pool. One time, when we were there, Ray forgot his trunks, the beachcombers we wore. Ray didn't have any. We were swimming when somebody called the cops. They came, and we took off running. They threw on the spotlight, and there was Ray running across the street bare-ass naked. <laughs> One morning at Shannon's house, her parents took off for the day. Ray lived across the street. He saw the car leave and went over. One morning at Shannon's house, her parents took off for the day. They're doing shenanigans when her parents come back and Shannon comes out in a bathrobe. Her dad goes in the bedroom, opens the closet door, and there's Ray. He takes off across the street, bare-ass naked. Ray and Shannon got into an argument. He sped off, rolled that old green thing, flipped it on the corner. We ran there, Shannon hysterical. Ray stood up, saying, like he did, Oh, Jesus. The Chaser Mystique, voices of Richard Rocha and Bobby Shoemaker. Yay, the Jew. No. <laughs> no? We'll get to, to oh, okay. the Jew, yeah. <laughs> Most said we'd turn out badly. Our name signified wild guy, partier, fighter. We thrived on reputation. Whether they admired or hated us, everyone knew who we were. Our jackets, our spot on in the stairwell. We played the cat, built a mystique that we were just Mexican kids, out for fun, nothing profound. One dad in moving and storage, Chico's dad a professor, another selling beer at ball games, another a cop, and yet another head of a rotating credit association, the Alianza Hispano-Americana. We were in shape, Every summer, our arms threw baseballs, our backs st strained under bulky furniture. 
One worked as a lifeguard. We hadn't seen each other for 50 years. Gathered at the Tucson High School reunion. Told ourselves stories about ourselves. Laughed as if we'd been together the day before. Had a reunion. People still talked about us. Still gave a bleep after 50 years. Okay, the Jewish guy, we've got to get him in. <laughs> no pressure. Um, you know, and of course, uh, I, I like the uh, Jutino uh, solidarity. Yeah. You don't yes. happen to have any Norwegians in there. Yeah, <laughs> all right. No. Dang it. I, I'm trying, but yeah. <laughs> we're recruiting. <laughs> yeah, you got to get a Norwegian I hate, chaser. Yeah. yeah, Anders could be your chaser. Yep, yeah. He could be a chaser. I'm not sure we can get you a jacket anymore. Ah, dang. Okay. Maybe a hat. Yeah. <laughs> or just a martini glass. Well, here it is. You were or were not. And who's Voices this? of Dick Koenig okay. and my voice. Great. Evenings, I helped Ra- Ralph do janitorial work at the Alianza Club. I was fortunate to have been a chaser and I'm grateful to Ralph for the invitation. Made me the man I am today. I've tried to be a loving man who knows how to cry, yet is able to hold his own. I'd been too protected when I joined the Chasers. Do you remember what you did, Chico, when we played pickup football? You slammed me. A clean blow. I'll never forget toughened me. Unconditional acceptance by the chasers meant the world to me. Being Jewish, I knew something of the bias you guys dealt with. It was all for one, one for all. You were or were not a chaser. So did he pick up any Spanish and did you guys pick up any Yiddish or anything? (laughs) I'd say not. No. <laughs> I'm, I don't think he didn't know Yiddish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not even a bissel. Not even a bissel. <laughs> and and also, you know, when you you mentioned that your dad had made a major contribution to scholarship by teaching Mexican literature, not just Spain Spanish literature. Um, you're a very esteemed uh, anthropologist. So, what do you think people would say your contribution to the field is? I know you're humble, but I'll make you. I'll try to make you... uh... I think one of the things that I've contributed is getting the voice of the analyst into the analysis and to see myself as an analyzing subject who needs to be who needs to be reflected on, who needs to be taken into account. This poetry book is a perfect example of it. The book was transformed when I started writing what I've came to call the me poems. When I'd left myself out, I felt like it was a little flat, that there was something missing. And then it, then it occurred to me that I wasn't in the picture because I was 
taking the picture. Mm. Right. And I, I needed to put myself you in. To make self, take selfies. Selfie self anthropology. Said, yes. To, to round it, to give it a kind of depth that it didn't have otherwise. And that's something I've been very committed to, to just saying, this is not navel-gazing. Ah, right. It's not inward-looking for the sake of looking inward. It's something that, as I reflect on what I had to struggle with to become a chaser and to become Mexican-American, is crucial for any reader to understand what the chasers were all about. One of the things that's most like that is hard-assing. Hard-assing is where you're... It's like playing the dozens. You're... It's like dogs fighting, right? Where they put their jaws around the other dog's Mm. neck but never bite. Mm -hmm. But, But it's an imitation of aggression. Right. But it's actually affection. And uh, I, I found it very difficult to hard-ass. And a friend in one of the poems here, it says, uh, look, just stop trying to hard-ass. And remember, it's never actually about the guy's mother. Right. <laughs> 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 Once you've done that, you've crossed the line. Right, right. And it's an invitation to a fight. It's right. Not, it's not the play. The, it's not the right. It's not funny anymore. Yeah. Not, stops being fun. Yeah. Not funny, Renato. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so the struggles with that that I had and that I wrote down. Uh, then become a window into a whole dimension of the relationships, right? Their quality. And and what I'm trying to get at in this is what were the quality of the relationships? How would you describe the qualities of the camaraderie? And if you leave hard-assing out, which suddenly became major when I put myself in, uh, if you leave hard-assing out, you've... You've left out a key ingredient of what this camaraderie was. What do you mean it became major when you put yourself in? Because I felt it was the thing that was hardest for me to do. I see. And I, so I reflected a lot on that. You know, I wish I could have done this. Right. And, and of course, then the other guys helped me out. So Bobby Shoemaker, whose first language was Spanish, whose family was all Spanish-speaking, but... He has, uh, there's one of the poems here where he says, I never liked you, Chico. That's what I was called with the chasers, right? Right. Chico. Right. He says, I never liked you. Uh, I thought you were borderline. We never voted anybody out, but you were the strongest candidate. Yeah. And so he's hard-assing me. Right. Right. He said that to you. Yeah. Yeah. He said that to me, and so he's he's kind of roughing me up. Right. And it's part of this thing of what the chasers were doing for each other was toughening each other and and having that form of play, that banter. Right. So and, that and, probably wasn't true. No, he was just... Well, I think, suspect it was a little bit really? true. Really? The ring of truth, right? It had a it's little... It's funny because it's true, as I say. It, it's, I think it's funny because it has a, 
ingredient of truth right. to it. Uh-huh. No, it's far from the whole story. Right. And he's saying it in the context of his saying, I didn't fully know who you were in, in high school. Now I've come to admire you. And when oh, did wow. he say this? At the reunion. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So, well, and then there was one of the guys who, uh, I, there was an assembly about honors people were getting, and they mentioned that I had a scholarship to go to Harvard. And I thought, oh, my God, I've let down the chasers. I'll never live this down. This is awful. Awful. Fifty years later, Dick Rocha, one of the guys, says to me, you know, I was so proud when you went Uh, up there. And I'm like, you waited 50 years (laughs) to tell me that. I thought I couldn't live it down, right? But that's part of the pantern, the quality of the relations and, you know, a little bit playing with fire. Then I have a poem in there where I say, I realized 15 years later that what I'd been doing all this time was listening as intently as I could. And I was was, um, learning how to hard-ass by listening, by being an audience. I wasn't doing it. I was a quiet guy. But what I was doing instead was learning and it's like you learn to understand a language before you can speak it and understanding comes way before speaking and so what i was doing there was learning how to hard ass by understanding how it worked and attending to it with all my heart right as hard as i could but that means it was a foreign language to you right to some people it's not a foreign language right yeah Some people grow up speaking it it or being it or doing it. Did you ever apply it? Yes. And uh, I, the example I give in a poem there is that a West Indian guy was a master of hard assing Mm -hmm. because we we started bantering. I said, holy shit, I'm hard assing. We're hard assing. And I realized that's what we were doing. And I said, I'm doing it. Yeah. Finally. And then he says, I'd like uh, I'd like to see one of your housemates, a woman who lived in this collective house we were in. He says to me, "Are you the guard dog?" And I said, "Yes, uh, yes. As a matter of fact, I am. Your mother hired me." Oh, <laughs> yeah. so you broke the rule. No, I didn't, because it wasn't his mother. His mother did not hire me. Oh, you mean because it wasn't true? Yeah. Oh, okay. that's what they meant when it's never about the mother. I see. So it's if you say really something that's obviously right. not true. It's like Yo Mama. We had Yo right. Mama jokes yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah. And yeah. Yo Mama is, is like a character on her own. She's right. not anybody's yeah. specific mom. Right. Like no, no, yeah. Mama. Yeah. And if you suddenly start to describe a dress she actually wore, right. Right. that's not You're okay. out of bounds. Right, right. But this is so, okay, so obviously not so true. I get it, yeah. Yeah, no, so this is obviously not true, and it's obviously legit, and I'm playing the game he's playing, right? Right, right. And so, um, how do you identify now? What do you mean? You talk about becoming Mexican-American. Oh, I identify as Mexican-American, yeah. Uh, So it's... Is it that you were always, but you weren't aware of it, or you were always, but you didn't know how to express it, or you became it? What kind of identity is this? (laughs) Well, I think, look, 
I'd always, as a little kid growing up, I always knew I'd spoken Spanish when I was, until I was six. I always knew that I was Mexican. Uh, but what I didn't know was how to be Mexican-American, mm -hmm. which is different okay. from being a yeah. Mexican in Mexico City, like when I was playing right. with my cousins and stuff. I was always very, very aware of this, and it was always a part of who I was, but it's hard to be a community of one. Mm. And when there was an actual community right. of multiple members that had formed itself in the way it formed itself, not guided by me, uh, where I more or less had to figure out how it worked, right. uh, that, that was another story. Mm -hmm. when there's a community already there. Right. It's interesting what you said about putting yourself into it because one of the, my major frustrations with the media, um, and no, critiquing the media does not make you Trump-like. Uh, people who are saying that, who are just embarrassing, and according to you guys, I guess Chomsky is Trump-like. Anyway, um, one of my major problems with it is that, or a major problem with it, I'll make it less subjective, uh, is how, is the illusion of objectivity. So you have journalists pretending to be objective, pretending to just be doing reporting, just the facts, and they have an agenda. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with having an agenda. I think the, the thing that's wrong is when you pretend not to have one. Yes, that, um, I would agree with yeah. that. Yeah, so it's a little bit parallel. I mean, it's different, but, no, I but think there's some parallels. Yeah. I think there are parallels. I often feel that, that journalists should, should put themselves in and that doesn't destroy their objectivity. Right. It actually enhances it if it's clear where it's coming from and right. what its limits are. And, you know. Right. Um, yeah. And what about, what's the relationship between politics and anthropology? How separable are they? Not at all. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Not at all. I think that, um, I think that anthropology has to be committed and for me a model of that is E.P. Thompson the historian you know he's cheering for the working class mm -hmm. when in his book The Making of the English Working Class so you see the guy cheering but you never doubt that he's playing fast and footloose with his documents with his sources mm -hmm. that he's not distorting right. he's not, He's not selecting with a bias. You you feel like he's got a lot of what I'll call data integrity. Mm -hmm. Right. Because right. he cares about the subject, so he wants to re well, portray it realistically. He wants exactly. to give it, yeah. Exactly. So I, I think that, to me, that's a model of what, what could be done, or at least a starting point for deeper discussion. Mm -hmm. Where I, and that, that would be the kind of goal that I would seek for this. And, and I think you have to put your politics in mm -hmm. uh, to be legible. Right. right. To be legible to so that somebody can tell where you're coming from right. so they can criticize you appropriately. Right. And what is your anthropological analysis of our present moment, political moment? Oh, <laughs> I know, really easy, right? As to wrap up with, yeah. Well, it's it's a thing to, that can easily lead to despair. Mm -hmm. uh, I just spent three months in Canada 
where everybody was saying to me, have your people gone crazy? <laughs> What's going on down south? That meaning the United States, right? Yeah. Uh, they think of themselves rightly as being up north. Right, right. right. <laughs> and and they, uh, I think this is a moment where we really need to make a tremendous effort to... Uh, to be a bit cool, a bit cooler than we may feel. Right. But actually to try to open spaces for some dialogue. With, uh, with whom or between whom or among whom? Well, with people we don't agree with. Mm -hmm. With Canadians. Yeah. Well, with Canadians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think... With Hillary fans, you mean? Just kidding. I don't endorse anyone. And, uh, yeah. Well, it could be with Hillary fans. I mean, but ju just to try to go deeper I yeah. think I think it's a really difficult moment because well, I'm so on the edge of the utter despair mm -hmm. <laughs> and just thinking how could this have happened or, but I'm working now where there's a group of us editing a volume that came out of a seminar in March in Santa Fe New Mexico and the, and the volume is Latinos under Trumpism. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, talk about that. And so what we're f one of the main things we've found is that a lot of the things that we'd like to attribute to, to the fat man, as I call him, <laughs> uh, I, I'm trying to think of a name that he would take as an insult. Right. You're going to get in trouble from, for body shaming, though. Watch. It's very funny when Trump and his people try, get woke. Anyway, but oh, they will okay. if, 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 if they can, yeah. Oh, yes. Don't worry about it, though. You're, this is a safe space for that. <laughs> well, I think, I think that uh, the th one of the main things we found was that the things that many people attribute to Trump is if they were without precedent. Right, exactly. And right. nothing like this had never, ever occurred. We've, we've been finding in our discussions at that seminar that they have a long history. Right. And that what's happened is these things have intensified and, and Trump is uncanny at tuning into stereotypes and throwing them at the wall, at the people. And, you know, uh, I think that, uh, I, I think that it's important to realize he didn't invent all this stuff and that it has a long history and that we, we best kind of own it and figure it out and try to think of what our country is like in terms of race relations. And, you know, it's, it's more comparable to South Africa under apartheid than I think most people want to own. Uh, and I think that it, that's a very revealing comparison on a number of papers in this collection, which we are trying to make come out in time for the election. Oh, great. I, I don't think it'll be a blockbuster bestseller. It's an academic right. book. Yeah. The collection that changed. As goes this anthology, so goes the country. <laughs> yeah. I don't have any illusion of that kind. But 
I think it's extremely important to get that out there because there are people who will learn from this and may change their way of responding to events and speaking about them and intervening in them. Uh, And I I think that... uh, I think it's really important work. I, I don't think you figure it out by does the book sell a million copies or does it persuade, does it completely change the course of history? But if it changes the way, the kind of interventions that a small number of people make, that's that's really important. Right. So that's what what we're trying to do in that book. So we're trying to figure out a way to. Well, that that's the papers are in process, right? Great, yeah. You'll have to come back and yes, we can do a roundtable here at this literal roundtable. Um, well, thank you so much, Renato Rosaldo, for talking to us today. Uh, anthropologist and poet, also author of The Chasers, his new book of poetry. You can see him Tuesday, September 10th at the King Juan Carlos Center, Monday, September 16th at the Greenlight Bookstore, Wednesday, September 18th at Word Up. Also, I'm going to plug a new thing I'm doing, a new podcast with Matt Taibbi. It's a Rolling Stone podcast called Useful Idiots that I just started with Matt Taibbi. You can check that out. And uh, Anders, where can people find you? At Anders Lee here on Twitter, and my podcast is uh, Pod Damn America, so check that out. And you have a new exciting announcement. I do, yes. I'm going to be joining the team at Redacted Tonight on the RD Network. With Lee Camp. That's right. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to The Katie Halper Show. You can find The Katie Halper Show on SoundCloud and iTunes. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Also, please subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show. The Katie Halper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. Our theme song is by the band Cordova. 